The Unstarving Artist book is available now at unstarvingartistbook.com. Hey, Nick, how's it going? It's going well, Harry. Thanks. How are you? I'm good, man. It's good to see you. I'm looking forward to chatting with you. Um, it's been a minute since we last caught up. Um, really curious to hear how things have been going with um, the custom guitars and the art you've been doing with that. Um, so let's let's jump into that. But real quickly before we do, I just want to share a quick message, everybody who's listening in. So a um, couple announcements. One is if you've been enjoying the podcast, you enjoy these episodes, I'm looking for help with producing them. Um, I need help with basically uh, promoting the podcast, growing the reach of it, uh, helping with retention, uh, and eventually helping with ways to monetize it and make it more sustainable and more profitable. So if that interests you, go to unstarvingartist.com slash producer to learn more, and you can apply and we can see if it might be a good fit to work together. Um, if you're enjoying the show and you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe on YouTube, uh, hit the notification bell so you can get alerted when we post new episodes. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, things like that, go ahead and follow the show there as well. And then make sure to tell your friends, share the podcast with friends if you're getting value from this so that we can also grow our reach that way. So without further ado, Lake, let's get into what you've been up to. Uh, tell me uh, and, and everybody who's listening in just at a high level kind of what sort of art you've been working on and, and the guitars that you, you focus on. Yeah, you bet. So I... Um... My background is is as a visual artist primarily, and so um, I've always found it interesting to um, I, the idea of like what I call functional art. So furniture, for example, or like guitars in, in, in this case, and that's just my experience and background as a musician and an artist. And so I was, how do I combine art and music and my love of the instrument of, of guitars? And so that came together with um these creative artistic one-off guitars so these are one of one they're not available anywhere else i i'm modifying them i am doing crazy designs and things that are typically normal uh with guitars to make them an art piece you can hang on the wall but also that's functional so so if you want to play it pick it up and you know strong by all means go do that you can go play gigs if you really wanted to if you're a musician um but this this kind of all started uh, really during the pandemic. So as everybody was shut down, things were shut down. I wasn't as a musician playing gigs, live gigs. Uh, so I had always wanted to build my you know, own, and never really had gotten into it or invested the time to find out how, how this happens, how people do this. Uh, and then uh, just started watching a bunch of YouTube tutorials about people who build guitars and I had this idea of sourcing existing guitars like old discarded guitars or old discarded guitar parts and using my creative visual art and design background to do to make them visually aesthetic in some way or I really like the idea of a relic kind of look an old vintage sort of worn well-worn kind of feel and for guitar players out there they they know the more worn a guitar is the more played it is the more like the wood has settled and the better the tone usually the better the feel when you're playing it um that and i also know as a guitar player myself guitarists typically want some sort of like instrument that expresses their personality but also is something that really no one else has. 
Um, it's it's at least I, I know I'm that way, and, and other guitarists I talk to in like my own small circle seem to be that way too. Um, and that so that's really where it came from. I I started sourcing from thrift thrift shops like old guitar parts and old guitars and whatever else. The other piece of this is that by reusing and upcycling those old materials from old guitars into something new, we're keeping those things out of landfills, which is kind of a nice byproduct of, of this whole effort. But Nick, let me ask you this. Um, were yeah. you a musician first or an artist first going way back in the day? Okay. So way back in the day. Yeah. I was an artist first. Um, Tell me about, part... about that. You said you have a visual arts background. Yeah. What, when did you first get into the arts? Was it your, your parents or school or? Yeah. What well, I will say this about my parents. They're, um, they are not artistic. But they appreciate the arts, so uh, that that was helpful uh, to support and encourage my getting into the arts. And I have two older brothers, and we're all at least musicians and and all that kind of stuff. And um, but I got I always wanted to play guitar for whatever reason. The, the instrument just fascinated me. But younger, I didn't have access to one. We didn't have one in the house uh, or anything like that. And, I, and this is like you know elementary school. Um, but I always was creative and interested in drawing. So drawing became like my outlet uh, for creativity without having like an instrument, I guess, and, and wanting to do that. We always listen to music and stuff like that. Um, so I would just put music on and then I would draw and I would draw from comic books and draw you know, my own creations and whatever else, just anything and everything. That led over the years, you know, to taking more and more art classes and whatever else in, in high school and, and music too. I was involved in a band that played clarinet. Do you remember, was there a, uh, was than... there a specific comic that got you into drawing? No, I wouldn't say that got me into drawing. I mean, the, my earliest memories of art was really like watching Bob Ross on PBS, mm -hmm. uh, doing his happy little trees and painting, um, and those kinds of things. And then as I got into comics though, um, it was, it was a lot of like, you know, it was the Stanley, the Marvel kind of comics, X-Men and, uh, these kinds of things. And I just was fascinated that you could draw like these characters that looked like people and they were like in these cool action poses and whatever else. And I was like, how do you do that? And really I, I just would stare at these things and, and music too, album cover art. I don't know if that's a lost thing these days, but uh, I would just like stare at this album art and be like, oh, how do they do all this? So I would take comics and I would just put them down and I would just start to observe the line flow and, and I would just mimic it. And, you know, I, I wouldn't trace it, but I would just mimic it freehand. And the early stuff was terrible, you know, <laughs> and then uh, you keep practicing like anything and you get better and better. And, and that's kind of how it's, it's started. And then I, my folks to their credit, you know, saw that, Hey, it's kind of looking like comic itself that he was drawing from. So maybe we should, uh, help support this a little bit. And so, um, were there any album covers to... that you remember that were especially, you know, impressive or interesting to you? Okay. So uh, this is like guilty pleasure, but like. 80s uh Def Leppard with like the Hysteria album was like 
this crazy looking cover. And I, I still to this day don't really understand what the heck's all going on in that cover, but or like Boston, the band Boston, they always had these really otherworldly looking things or journey or uh, any any of these, especially the 80s. They seem, seem to have a lot of crazy art uh, back then uh, on their album covers. But um, yeah, it, it, it was always it was always pretty cool. So I started getting more into like summer camps. I would do, you know, I played sports and things, but I would do like life drawing classes, and do still lifes and start to learn how to draw more from real life. And that just progressed and then uh, ended up in, in college and getting a fine art degree. So uh, that's kind of the background. But I was always 2D design. So um, I've never been a 3D sculpture or three-dimensional art kind of guy. So getting into the guitars, which is very much three-dimensional functional art, was kind of a, a little bit of a leap. Although I've always been fascinated with it. Just the 2D drawing and painting was, was always my work. And so when did you, um, when did you do pick up guitar yourself, start playing? Yeah. So, so around, so here's the story around that. My older brother, he's a drummer and he's about four years older than I am. So when he was in high school and he had a part-time job, so he had access to a little bit of money, um, he decided, you know what? I would like to learn how to play guitar. And I was like, jealous because hey man you know i've always wanted to play guitar and i don't have i'm like four years younger than you i'm in middle school i don't have any money i don't have a job uh you know i can't go to buy my own take lessons that's what he did he decided to use his money bought a guitar got some guitar lessons and so then what i would do is i would watch him practice at home and see where he's putting his fingers and whatever else and then when he wasn't home i would sneak into his room and pick it up and start to try to remember where he had his fingers and start playing guitar. So um, that happened for, I don't know, a year or so. I was probably about four, uh, 13, 14-ish at the time. And um, after a little while, he found out I was kind of doing this. And, um, and then he actually showed me a few things. And it turned out like kind of caught on to it pretty, pretty quickly. And then he was, actually advocated. Was he taking lessons or how was he learning? He was. Yeah, he was taking lessons and he was learning like, you know, songs he wanted to learn, like uh, Led Zeppelin song or whatever, you know, whatever it was that he was into. That's what the teacher would teach him. So it was fun for him to, to learn. And so that was my influence, too. I was learning that stuff. So while he was getting lessons, I was sort of getting lessons by association. Yeah. <laughs> um, and a little bit self-taught in that way. And then he advocated for me with my folks and said, hey, he kind of has an act for this. Maybe we should get him lessons. Um, and so that's that's where it all started. So I was about 14. And was then it I an acoustic or an electric guitar? It was an acoustic. Um, and I took lessons for about four years in high school. And those are all the lessons I had. So uh, I kind of got the basics and that's about it. I didn't get too deep into it. And then the rest has been self-taught. And I've been a songwriter for you know, ever since been in bands and all that kind of stuff. So I just, it's, it's like a limb now music. I, I can't be doing it. I, I wouldn't know who I am without it. Did you study music theory at all? I did not study music theory. Um, specifically, I have picked a lot of it up. Um, and in high school, I, I, I played the clarinet in like elementary and middle school and high school. 
Um, and that's how I learned music and learned to read music and things. So I picked up a lot of theory through that. Um, but how you apply theory to a guitar is, is a little different or how you apply that theory in terms of actually making it happen on whatever instrument you're on is usually a little bit different instrument to instrument, but the theory is essentially the same. Uh, so I picked up, uh, some things just, you know, on my own YouTube's amazing. These things, all the things you can learn, um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been, it's been just a lot of fun. Uh, and I'm, I'm just involved in all aspects of the music piece. And I find that art and music go hand in hand. I, I will be writing this song and in my working, I've visualized all sorts of things that sometimes I'll, I'll actually create a piece of art that's related to whatever the song inspired that I'm writing, uh, or vice versa. This, this makes a melody and then I'll come to a guitar and write a song. And, and so I, I've always, those things have always been linked. And for your day-to-day, -day, you also, correct me if I'm wrong, you work in marketing, right? Right, yep. I, I work for a tech company um, running what we call customer marketing and advocacy. So essentially helping build communities of customers to help them enjoy and uh, have affinity for the brand. So with your degree in fine arts, how do you get into marketing for tech companies? There's a bridge there. Um, and, and what happened was, so as I was in college, I was, uh, getting my art degree. Um, I started to study, uh, a lot of graphic design, uh, like I just knew, you know, and, and this was too, my folks were kind of like, well, you know, get a fine art degree. What, what are you going to do with that to support yourself? Uh, and I'm like, uh, I'm just going to make art and sell it. Right. You know, that's, that's, and that's what I'm doing now in a lot of ways. So, so it's, yeah, I can tell them it worked out, I guess, but, um, the bridge really was, I took a lot of graphic design and figured out if I, if I know how to do this in the computer, I can make myself marketable. I also took a lot of English and writing courses. The idea that if I could not only design, but also do copywriting to go with it. That probably makes me even more marketable. Um, and that's essentially what happened. So then as I got out of school, I was doing design and copyright kind of stuff for, for different um, professional jobs. And that just led me into marketing, which turned into like, oh, there's this discipline in business that can pay you and you can make a living where it really kind of encapsulates all these things. And that was marketing. So. I've been doing that for 20 plus years at this point in various capacities and now with a tech company. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's great. It supports my family, um, creative things, you know, I still get to make all my guitars and sell those and that's growing. And so trying to just create this really, really nice balance. What is advocacy marketing? So, okay. So that is really around, um, so like your community, for example, you have a bunch of people who, um, have hired you or, or are part of the community because they have, um, a shared purpose around creating art and selling art, uh, and those kinds of things. And, um, advocacy marketing is from, from your perspective, helping to make that community and that, uh, online digital presence for all, all those artists who are in there appealing 
and cohesive. So you can retain, like you want to give them a lot of content and you want them to feel good about it and have it be valuable for them. And that's really the first thing. It's like, you have to be customer obsessed. It's all about their experience of them getting value. They get value out of what you're doing. Then they're more likely to want to promote your brand and what you're doing. And that's kind of the idea is let me give you tons of value. And then as a result, you're going to help me by promoting it, even though I'm not necessarily explicitly asking you to do that. I might explicitly ask you, but if you enjoy the brand and you um, feel like it's providing value, naturally you're going to do that. You know, like you go see a movie you love, you're probably going to tell a few friends to see it. Um, it's that kind of idea. And then what happens is there, there's a mutual benefit that ends up occurring. And this helps with retention of new people. It helps with finding new people for new business to come in. Um, it helps with capturing testimonial stories for the brand, for the business. Uh, you know, you, you just have a stable of people who are ready, willing, and able to showcase what they've done as a result of the value provided to them and they want to do that because they, they truly believe in the value they've received from the organization. So it, it's really marketing in general. This is kind of a subset discipline that is focused just on your customers, like post-sale um, your customers are. And then you can scale it when it's part of like community or something like that. And people are helping each other. Now you're building relationships. Like people are peer-to-peer building relationships without at all and that's magic really yeah i've always heard it described as um in any business no matter what you're selling you at some point somebody makes a purchase and now they're a customer just because they've bought doesn't mean that they you know are a raving fan or uh spreading the word or sharing with other people what you're doing and so that is another evolution of the customer from just being a paying customer to what we call an advocate right and so um, mm-hmm. advoc- advoc- advocacy marketing is all about um, how can you convert more and more of those customers into people that are yeah basically advocates for the brand for what you're doing um, and so it sounds like what you're saying is like a, yeah creating a community for those customers is often uh, a core to turning them into advocates yeah the mechanism to, to help foster that for sure and accelerate that skill got it okay interesting um have you always been in advocacy marketing over the last 20 years or like what other sort of marketing hats have you worn yeah, in your journey? Yeah. So, uh, I, I've, um, so I would say, and, and customer advocacy marketing, uh, so I've been in like a B2B tech realm and, and part of the reason that's so prevalent now in tech is these are SaaS businesses, so software as a service. So there are subscription software, um, businesses and years and years ago, it used to be hard to make a switch from software to software. So like you were using a software for your payroll or something and you wanted to switch to a different payroll provider and their software, um, you actually owned the, the hardware to make that stuff run in your organization. And now it's all in, on the internet. So it's web apps. It's just easier for people to, to move uh, from one to the other without huge the costs. And so with that, um, customer success kind of departments and, and customer advocacy had started, started to come into play because they needed value beyond the software itself 
to retain these people because it's very easy for people to make a switch now. It doesn't, you know, there isn't as much cost pain uh, in terms of turnover. So that's kind of where it, it sort of originated um, in, in the tech space and the um, tech space. But I'm getting back to more of a question around some of the other aspects that, that I've been. So the last about seven, you know, almost eight years have been specifically in this customer uh, advocacy realm. And that um, was pretty new back in 15-ish, like in terms of the tech world. It's still getting legs under it, but it's definitely more prevalent now than ever. And I think the pandemic helped with that in the sense that everyone doubled down on their customers because they didn't know where their new business was coming from at that time. And so this whole discipline of marketing got a big boost at that, at that point. Um, but my background when I got into marketing was more on, if you can believe it or not, print flyers and, and uh, uh, those kinds of things, doing graphic design and copywriting for, I, I, one of my first jobs was I worked for a commercial real estate firm um, and it was like basically doing flyers for their list that they would hand out to their at showing the building and then that evolved into um, you know the yeah. internet came out social media started later, and I was like well, this is something with this all this social there's got to be a way to social media market <laughs> and so it started getting into that and just making connections with people and I fell in love with, with that aspect and that turned into content marketing. So that's where it's, it's a lot of writing I was doing started coming in. Just, just building blog posts and things that would um, uh, build SEO, a search engine found on, on Google searches and stuff more easily. You have enough content that Google can go and find. Um, and then that just kept evolving. So it was, it was kind of like traditional media marketing to to social media marketing early days and social and content inbound marketing is, is often another term for that um and then that has led and when i found out about customer advocacy marketing tech space I was just like oh god that's like inbound marketing 4.0 i want to see what that's all about so that, that's kind of the progression nice i love that yeah and i think um like if, so, if you're in B two B marketing, um, do the companies you've worked for do they often have a sales team or a sales force that's bringing in customers? They they do have a sales force, um, and, and it's interesting because I feel like these days over over the years that that, and I'm not a salesperson, so I, I might be generalizing this a little bit, but um, their role has changed a little bit, so it's less. So if you think about pre-internet or whatever, the salesperson held all the, the answers to their product or whatever. So if you needed information, if you were shopping for their product or service and you needed information about it, you had to go to the salesperson to get that information because it wasn't readily available to you online or anywhere because it didn't exist. Well, now it's online and everywhere. And that's why content marketing is so prevalent too. Like people want to self-serve. And so they want, when they're shopping for something, they want to go and find out the information for themselves, hear from real customers and their experience, like what we're doing here, 
um, any of those kinds of things. They they just want to self serve and find the answers on their own. They don't want to be felt like they're in a pushy sales situation. So our salespeople these days tend to be more like guides and and um, you know making sure that they're pointing people to all the information and or if they have questions, answering those things and following up and really trying to just build a relationship and rapport kind of with the individual. And I, and I do believe that uh, when people buy, a lot of times, yes, they're, they're buying the product uh, because it fulfills a need that they have. Um, but the reasons they buy might be more than just the product. A lot of times it's emotional because they've made a connection with whoever they were talking to who was representing that product. And I think that plays into not only you know, day to day to day, like sales, but things we're doing here, selling guitars, like, you know, you get people um, on Instagram or whatever, and you do the studio tours or whatever. It's just like, that's what you're doing. You're making a connection. You're not necessarily pushing it on them, but you're asking them, what do you care about? What do you, what do you like? What, you know, and, and you're getting to know someone and then all of a sudden, if it's going to happen, you know, you can make the ask and, and it's going to go one of a couple ways, right? <laughs> yes or no or whatever. And, and even if it's a no, it doesn't mean not now. It, it may just mean not now, but um, it, it, you also make a connection. That's what I always tell people every time I meet and talk with people um, that, I, that I haven't met previously or in a studio tour or something. It's like, if nothing, you know, if you don't purchase anything out of any of this, don't worry about it. Like, we both have a, a new mutual connection now. We have our, our LinkedIn following is up one now and, and that we both benefit. So sure. So yeah. Um I was curious. I wanted to ask you like uh with with the twenty years in marketing, was there ever a point where you, you thought to yourself, Oh, you know what, I think I might be able to use some of these skills to help me sell art or create my own art practice or something like that? And if, if so, like just tell me a bit about like when you had that sort of insider realization. Yeah. Um, actually, excuse me. I think it was the opposite. I think I've always been fairly entrepreneurial as an artist. Um, I, I don't know. Like my dad was a business person and, uh, and all that. What like, business so that was he in? Of, uh, he, he was actually in the produce business. Um, uh, but for a large corporate, um, supplier of like grocery stores and things like that his dad owned a food truck uh, a food you know stand uh fruit vegetables and stuff like that a bunch of italians in the food business that's <laughs> pretty common um but um that's kind of how i got into it but that business sense i think was always ingrained in itself with sibling not growing up so it's kind of like okay if i want to spend my time making art still got to live and eat and have shelter and all those things so how do i how do i monetize art so i do more of that and then you know still still have everything i need to, to survive uh, so that was always in, in my brain and so i think i always create but then in the back of my mind it's like okay well how, how would i position this to, to sell it. So it always, uh, you know, music with the same play gigs and whatever else to get paid to do that. And it was like, okay, I get paid to stay and have fun for two hours and then get a check. And, and I also get to talk with a bunch of people on the team and 
to build social community. And sometimes that's even more interesting than actually playing the show. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so, so I feel like I learned a lot of entrepreneurial type skill and marketing skills just early on from, from that, because I was always talking in art or music stuff or whatever I chose, even before I was out of school and, and working at a professional job. Um, Are you selling your own CDs then, or like you were at somebody else's yeah. show and like helping out with their, you know, merch? Uh, no, 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 it, no. I, uh, I might've done that if I wasn't spending so much time on creating and selling my own stuff. <laughs> um, so, uh, no, it's always, it was primarily any bands I was in, we would always, you know, find a way to record something to sell. Cause I would always be like, Hey, it's marketing. If we, if we promote, if we have something that people can take home cause they had a good time at the show, then they're more likely to remember us and maybe come back to another show or, or tell their friends or whatever. So I'm like, we have to have a product to sell or whatever. Uh, and we would get into it and all that. But, um, I, so I always felt like. The entrepreneurial sense is what taught me a lot of basic principles about marketing business. So then when I got into a professional marketing job, um, I, I kind of understood what, what at least the, the fundamentals of what was needed. Um, it was just learning and executing on that. And then now, uh, to your point, to your question, um, absolutely, the, the experience I've had in the last 20 years doing marketing work has um, been brought into what I do as an artist because I've learned different things in B2B marketing that I'm like, oh, that might be interesting to me in selling my guitars. How do you scale back basically B2B marketing principles for like a B2C kind of operation like in selling art? And what, you know, what are those commonalities or parallels or, or could I just try it and see if that works? And vice versa, I might do things in my own entrepreneurial creative world where I'm like, I'm going to bring this to my data. This is like interesting. I think I could do something with this here and our, our folks might, you know, latch onto this and, and we'll try things out. So it becomes kind of symbiotic at, at, at some point in the last several years where uh, I feel like I'm learning from both sides of of those operations. That's awesome. And you also strike me as somebody who's really uh, personable, open, got some good communication skills. Were you always that way? Was that something that you're kind of was raised as, or did you have to learn that as well? Um, yeah, I, I think I always, uh, if you ask my folks, I just never shut up, <laughs> you know, so, so I think Inherently, it was there. Um, over the years, I think it's it's been harnessed and, and um, fine tuned, used for <laughs> for forces of good. Um, no, but I mean, realistically, just I I think being um, in art school, like in college and studying art, we always one of the things I feel like has helped as as a public speaker, if you want to call it that, or just even talking in in. Uh, in a realm where you know you have a bit of an audience not just one-on-one -on -one. um and getting comfortable with that was just doing art critiques so you you create your work and then everybody's work in the class would get put up on the wall or on pedestals or whatever if it's sculpture or whatever and go around the room and then people would say what they like didn't like or ask questions about what what was going on here what was your thought process in, in making these creative decisions you know 
and all that. And so it, it, it forces you to be able to take criticism for one. Um, the nice thing about that is the idea is you're fostering a safe space where criticism should be constructed. The idea is it's, it's to help improve or help explain uh, things so that you as an artist are getting, getting better. Um, and so one of the big pieces, and I remember this I, um, from a particular professor um, who was just like, if you, if you can articulate your art, that's just as important, if not more so, than the actual art and the art process and everything you're creating. Because if you can't articulate your intentions um, or, or the, the artistic choices that you made, then it, it can be it can be easily pigeonholed from an outside perspective as just whatever their impressions are. An art is subjective anyway, so everyone's welcome to their own interpretations and impressions and, and how they you know apply whatever that art is into their own lives. Um, but being able to tell a story, and I think that's what it comes down to, is storytell storytelling. Being able to tell a story and explain, hey, this this is where this came from. And then as you do that, it doesn't mean the viewer of the art is uh, going to necessarily take your impression as their own. Like they, they might have their own perspective of what they get out of viewing your art. But by articulating your impression, it may resonate with them and they may like, like it more. Or they may totally disagree with your intention and be like, mm, I don't know, that's not, that's not what I see. Or I'm kind of turned off by that art now that I know your story or whatever. And that, that's okay. But the times that it lands and it does resonate, the emotional um, uplift, I think, is greater. And tie that back to it. Those are the times I feel like self or art. I love that. That's that's that makes a ton of sense. Um, have you seen the movie The Menu? Do you know this movie? Came out recently. I don't know that movie. No, I just, I'll have to check. This I out. just saw it uh, last night. It's a comedy horror movie. Um, kind of like what's that movie? Uh, Knives Out or Glass Glass Onion? It, it kind of felt like that. Okay. Um, uh, Liam Neeson is this you know world class chef, um, Michelin star you know, chef and he has this restaurant out on an island. And anyway, you you're you talking about the art critiques maybe think of that because he's has all these high class guests to the island to his restaurant and he's explaining each course and telling this story and some people totally eat up the story, you know, and other people think it's all BS. <laughs> and um yeah. It, it just made me think about like uh, how important, yeah, telling a story and then also like if you, the, the, the reason a lot of them would believe the story, most of them, the people with the guests were believing it was because like he, he believed it himself really well, you know, sort sure. of this like uh, confidence and uh, sincerity and earnestness with which he would um, describe like the different uh, 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 courses and uh dishes that he was preparing and it's it's food but it's still like a, a it's just a i watched it last night so it's just on my mind as like a, a perfect example of what you're talking about <laughs> but if you, if you don't yeah, like horror don't watch the movie it gets scary <laughs> oh 
no, I'll check it out. But yeah, no, that that is, I mean, that is kind of what it is. And, and people can think it's BS, but the thing you just said that really, um, I think is is necessary in that whole approach is um, is the authenticity of, of the artist. So, like you said, you have to believe it. You have to believe in what you're doing. You have to be motivated and authentic about what you're talking about. If it if it comes off as phony or or fake or whatever, people do see through that. And so, um, I'm not advocating for making up stories just to, to make sales or anything like that. Um, that's not at all what I'm trying to say, but, but if you believe in what you're doing and you had an intention, um, that you had, credence, I think, I, I think more what, than okay to hear that. Exactly. And I think, I think where people, uh, sometimes get tripped up is like, yeah, they, they see that, that small, uh, but loud contingent that's cynical, that's skeptical, that poo poos things. And when other people put themselves out there and then they say, oh, well, like, I, I'm not going to speak. I'm not going to tell a story uh, unless I know that no one's going to be cynical. No one's going to be skeptical. No one's going to reject my story. And it's like you, you, it's an unrealistic expectation. So, yeah, I think it's, yeah. it's more about your internal state and attitude. Like if you feel like you're speaking uh, to a truth or something that is important to you and you're stating that with confidence and authenticity, like you said, then, um, you just kind of have to like let the the cards fall where they lay. Yeah, you got to let go of expectation once uh, once it's out there at, at that point. But so back to your your original question. So where do the public speak? Like, I don't know. You're comfortable being in front of people or whatever. That that was one big piece of it. And then the fact that I was just a musician. I I was used oh, yeah. to years and years of playing gigs and being on stage in front of people and trying to work a crowd. Um, because when you play. When you play in bars and things like that, they are not really you have to win uh, them over. The bar doesn't, yeah, bars don't care. The bar owners don't care like about your music so much as they may, but I mean, they're running a business. So you are there to entertain the patrons. So they buy more drinks. So the bar makes more money. If the bar makes more money, they might actually have you back to play again. Um, so I would always go into these performances. I still do this if I'm playing any establishment uh that that i am i am live entertainment advertisement for the the venue that i'm in um so i want to connect with everybody i want to have a great time and that that benefits me and my market itself but if it benefits the business that i'm working with who hired me to, to play at that venue and they make a good night you know a good revenue on the night um then now that that increases my chances of being asked back and it, it just becomes a win-win so it's um do you have any certain like uh like um uh, rhetorical tools or sort of like things that you do when you're performing to get people to come and pay attention or um anything like yeah, that i mean well i mean social media marketing is like free distribution for any messages you're putting out there so i recommend using all of that and you talk about that in a lot of the trainings like Instagram reels and these all, so all those do you, things. you make reels well, like on the, on while you're on stage, like live? No, 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 no. This is like beforehand to get people to come to, to a perform. In fact, I, I performed yesterday afternoon at, um, like a bar restaurant and they have a, a, a great rooftop, um, open rooftop, like stage and bar up there and, and all that stuff. And it was a beautiful, gorgeous day weather wise. Um, 
So that's what I was doing Instagram reels and different things prior to the show. And they would tag, we would mutually tag each other, the, the venue and I, we get people there, place was packed, uh, gorgeous day, had a, had a blast. But while I'm on stage, just, just goofy things, you know, I just, I, you know, stupid stuff like, um, you know, I'll tell a bad dad joke or something in between the song and, you know, it might get a couple of chuckles, but nothing, nothing much. And then I'll just be like, okay, these are the jokes, folks. I don't have many of them, but uh, if you could just offer up a pity chuckle once in a while, it helps me feel good about myself. And and then that gets a little bit of a laugh. And it's just starting to like connect and it's like, okay, I'm human, you're human. Let's, let's enjoy it, you know, um, or like, don't forget to get another drink from the bar and the more, the more you drink, the better the music gets over the, over the course of the show here. And I mean, just you sort of have to read whatever the, that doesn't necessarily work if you're in a coffee shop. And, sure. You know, they're not serving alcohol or something. Um, Are you singing? But things like, things like that. And then I, and then I'm always promoting the venue, like this, this place is just like, Hey, you know, just want to thank the venue for hosting me. Right. Hope everybody's having a good, you know, just, you just bring it all together and, and in a very human way. And it's, it's, you know, and it's like, Hey, I'm going to do this song next, or here's a song I wrote. And maybe it's a short, quick story about the lyrical content of that song. Uh, so people can kind of relate to it or, or listen for it. Are these uh, like the, the gig you did yesterday? Is it just you or do you have other people playing with you? No, it was just me. It's just a uh, solo singer songwriter playing guitar and singing, um, and I mean, I played so in bands. When I, you do that, you're like that. more exposed, even more exposed. Like you have to be the one who's keeping people. You're a little attention. bit naked up there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but like I said, over time, so this gets back to how are you comfortable in front of people? Like it's, it's over 25 years of playing live gigs and putting myself out there and essentially being forced to be in front of people. And once you do that, for any length of time, and you don't need 25 plus years to, to get to that point, but um, to, to relate, relate it back, do 10 studio tours. You're going to start to feel way more comfortable by the 10th one than you did in the first one. You know, it's just practice. And for those who don't know, a studio tour is just um, what we call like having a one-on-one -on -one conversation, either in person or over Zoom or what have you. Um, they could lead to a sale. Yeah, no, it's, um, I think it's, um, People who are new to business, they don't, uh, I think, appreciate how much, yeah, kind of, um, you, even if you're not an entrepreneur, if you're just in a job or if you're going to say, there are certain elements of that that require you to, to be on or to perform. And you can look at that in a negative, cynical way of like, oh, I don't want to per perform. I'm not like a dancing monkey. Or you can say, no, like, I want to actually show up and be the best version of myself and help as many people or reach or touch as many people as I can. And so if I think about how I'm presenting myself and how I'm coming across like that um, will allow me to do that better and better. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and one thing I always mention to, to people sometimes, because um, I, I have done uh, some jobs where you're doing more like sales related communications and, and you're, you're, you're actively contacting someone to get them to buy something. Um, and unless you believe in whatever that product is, it can be really challenging. Um, but what I always tell people, like, because I would always get apprehensive. It. It's some of, I don't like confrontation sometimes. And I feel like sometimes when you're interrupting someone's day for a sales call to get them to buy something and they're not expecting your call necessarily, um, 
it feels awkward in general. But at the end of it, I, I would always approach it like, okay, I'm apprehensive. I don't want to do this call. I don't want to, you know, try to put it off. Okay. At the end of the day, you know what? The other person on the other line, they're just a person. They're just, they don't want to talk to me as much as I don't want to talk to them at this point. Um, so maybe I could just find some common ground or be personable enough that we can make a connection and I'll just, you know, have no expectation of what the outcome is other than trying to make a personal connection. And that typically I think helps a little bit, you know, it's just, we're just all humans. Yeah. And the good thing is like, you don't have to necessarily do cold calling today in this day right. and age to have success at whatever, you know, business pursuit you're, you're going after. Um, so tell me when, what was the first guitar that you, uh, kind of refurbished and turned into an art piece. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So, um, it's, it, so the first one was I had found the first one, actually, I, I made a custom body. So it was like a, an electric guitar and it kind of like this one over here. And I, and I made, I cut out the body itself and I literally cut it out, uh, two by fours. I had put like three or four parts of a two by four together to make a big enough surface to then cut out a guitar shaped body. Um, and I had, um, the electronics and some of the hardware, uh, all the, all the hardware pieces, um, and a neck from a previous guitar, an old discarded guitar that I had. Um, and so I was like, okay, I'm going to build this body and then I'm going to figure out how to attach the neck and, and learn to put the, the electronics in. I, I'd never, I'm not an electrician, but I didn't even know how to solder electronics or anything. I was just, once I got to that part, did you need like, soldering? What that? Did you need soldering for the, to, to put it together? Well, for, with an electric guitar, you do, cause you, you solder the electronics to some of the volume controls, uh, and, and tone knob controls. And it's, it's pretty basic. It's just um, like a, it's like a glue gun, but with metal, right? Basically. Pretty much, yeah. But you have to know where it needs to connect for the the circuitry. You can't undo it if you do it do wrong. What you want it to. Right. Well, you can un you can undo it actually. You can let's heat it back up and and unglue it essentially because then the solder sort of gets malleable again and, and ah. pull it off. Um, but you could accidentally maybe but, short some of the circuits or you know maybe connect something to the wrong. Yeah, thing. if you don't connect it the right way and and the. the the electricity or uh, I don't, I don't even know if I'm using the right to if, if the, if the signal doesn't go through flow the right way through the right path. Yeah. You're not going to get the output that you're expecting. Um, so, you know, learning how to do that. So I, so I cut out this body and I only have hand tools. I, to this day, I don't have a, a router tool to make like really nice, clean cavities where, where the electronics can fit into. Um, I, I literally use a drill and a chisel and get it all out of there. And so the neck, so there's a neck pocket of an electric guitar where the neck kind of fits into the body of the guitar. And so I cut out this two by four body and I'm literally chiseling out where this neck pocket is. And it's very important that the neck sit there very snug and level. Uh, so that when you put strings on it and everything, it stays in tune and it, you know, produces the sound, uh, that one would expect to, to put out. And so, um, 
just using these, that was the big, that was the big learning curve, I think, was with that first one. I really feel like it took, I don't know, I wasn't working on it all the time, but I think I spent about two months just really taking my time because I just didn't know what I was doing. So there would be 20, 30 minutes where I'm just staring at this thing and just in my brain, visually trying to like figure out what the next steps need to be and what I need to do. Um, and I'm kind of a visual thinker like that. So I'll just like often stare at things and like in my brain, it's, it's going through all the scenarios of what I need to do because I don't want to do it and make a mistake and then have to like start over. So I'm kind Was of there like, something that triggered you to start this project? Like, did you just have some two by fours? What? why did you try to turn them into a guitar? Yeah. Well, I, 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 yeah, I had two by fours and I had uh, really what it was is I had these guitar parts, these old discarded guitar parts, a very, where did nice you get them from? Guitar. So I, I had gotten, um, I had bought a cheap, a really cheap guitar. Um, and it had, but it had like good electronics in the body of it and I liked it, but I didn't like the neck. So I, I unbolted it and took off the neck and I went on eBay and I got a really nice neck that I liked that, that made that guitar for me, the way I prefer to play, um, play really well. And I was like, oh, well, this is cool. I could do this. But then I had this neck and I was like, yeah, I feel bad. That's just sitting there. So uh, the, there's a guitar to be made with that neck because there's nothing wrong with the neck of that. It's just, it wasn't my preference of the way I like to play. It was a little thicker. Um, and I like a thinner neck and I was like, but I bet someone would love to play on that neck of a guitar. So like I, I had sympathy for the guitar parts that were sitting there unused. And so I was just like, I always wanted to build a guitar. I should just try to build one. And then I saw YouTube people building a lot of two by fours out of all I was like, I bet I could do this. And that was it. I just decided I was going to do it. And Start process. I have, like I said, I had a few tools, but I mean, nothing much. And I still just use the hand tools. I think that's part of the charm of these these guitars that they create. Um, when you um, craft. when you first plugged it in, were you surprised that it made sound? I well, yeah. So uh, once I soldered the electronics, and then I was doing a test, and I would just put like the screwdriver because it's a magnet. The electronics. And if it's plugged in, you can tap on it and it'll come through the amplifier, the, the tapping sound and like really big, loud sounding. And I was like, it's alive. It's working. This, I, I actually did it right. That's crazy. So got it all strung up and, and finished it and was able to play it. And I was like, this, this is amazing. And the next show I did, I brought it out and I played on it at the show, which was also great advertising for these guitars. Um, so yeah, it, it was. It was a really cool accomplishment feeling. Um, and I have two sons and, um, you know, they don't always get involved, but they see me working on this stuff and they, they're definitely curious. And I do have an older son who, um, we ended up building a guitar together and I, I you know, out of a design that he had, cause he's into some like video game characters and one of them plays a guitar. So I was like, well, what if we built the guitar? that video game play, character plays but in real life and we did that and then it sold and i said if it sells you get a commission and that was the motivator for it but it's 
So we worked on it, and uh, it was just a lot of fun. What so video it, game character? It, uh, he, he was in the Five Nights at Freddy's, and it was like, uh, what I, I forget which character it was, but Bonnie, Bonnie, I don't know. It, it was one of the I don't know that they, it, they look they look like uh, Chuck E. Cheese or animatronic animatronics or okay. whatever. That's what they look like. And so it was like the animatronic band and, and this one played this guitar. And so we, we made a real life version of it. And, uh, and then some, some Five Nights at Freddy fan bought it and it's hanging on their wall somewhere. So, um, so you made this first guitar with the plywood, the two by fours, not, not plywood, two yeah. by fours. Um, yeah. uh, from that point, when did the first sale of a guitar to somebody else happen? Yeah. So, um, I had created, I think, about three more. So I think I had four total. And with those three, yeah. were they also yeah. just parts lying around? You or were you more motivated? Like this was so much fun. I'm gonna like actively go out of my way to like make some more. Yeah, yeah. It it was I. It was a little bit of both. I, I had a few, um, actually not guitar parts, but I had wood and and materials like to create a body so i i created another one and i wanted to do something different so the, the first one i made was a what we call a solid body guitar um so like this this is all one solid piece um the second one i made was an electric star but it was what we call a semi-hollow body so kind of like this let's see it on the surface but middle of it is kind of hollowed out so it has a, a different resonance to it when you play it and um that was a lot harder so it would have been easier had i just tried to repeat making black first name again and gotten better at that process and i was like i'm gonna totally make something totally different that i haven't even tried before and that created all sorts of challenges and problems uh but you know overcame it and was like okay and then that was another sense of problem because it was growth it was i was Okay, I was challenging myself to do something, not just repeat what I already did, but do something, and um, and uh, overcome those those things to to accomplish it. But then at that point, I had like materials for the body, but I didn't have another neck, and I didn't have the electronics and whatever else. So I um, started getting up things well and. Uh, even their online versions of their stores and stuff like that. And then that, that to me brought another content piece. So as I'm marketing this out, I was like, oh, you know what? I'm keeping these things out of landfills. These are like, we're giving life to, to old discarded guitars that if no one picks them up at these thrift shops, they're just going to either sit there or they're going to throw them out eventually or whatever. And if I buy them from the thrift shop, most of those are nonprofits. I'm helping them out. So I was like, okay, this is kind of a win-win all around. And, and um, I, it made me feel good about it personally. So I started to source old used guitar parts from thrift shops. And that was how I built that, the, the next two or three guitars. Um, and then I started to talk to local music shops. I come to find out several of them have what they call the, the graveyard in the back where they just have old instruments that our parts and they haven't done anything with them. Somebody came in to swap out a neck of a guitar for something different that they wanted. And it's just sitting there. And so I would be able to pick them up for super cheap and start to use those parts. And that's kind of what I do now. And 
just try to source different things. And usually I have a theme or something in mind for a guitar that I'm building. So it's like, uh, so I was, I was asking about the, the first sale. So you said you had made three other guitars. Do you remember so that? I made three other guitars. Um, and that first sale, uh, it came through Etsy. Yeah. Sorry. I, you gotta cut me off and give me back on track. It's okay. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that first sale was, uh, it actually was through Etsy. So I wasn't sure really where, where to sell these things. And, and I was just like, well, that's a place for home, you know, handmade art, things like that. So, and I, at the time I didn't really see a lot of instruments or at least the way I, what I was doing, uh, available on there. So I was like, okay. And I put those out and literally, uh, maybe a month later or so. I got my first sale. I'm like, holy cow, dude. How much did you sell it here. for? That first one was, I want to say about 300. And I probably had, and I, and I was promoting it. So like I was covering the shipping costs. So, um, and I'm in the Midwest. And, I, and so I quickly realized I need to charge more because the person who bought it was like in Seattle or somewhere where my shipping cost was pretty exorbitant at that point and so my margin ended up being a lot slimmer than i was hoping uh, after materials and shipping and all that kind of stuff i was like okay but it sold and my thought was if i sold one for any amount of money it means i can do it again i just need to get more efficient and figure out the better pricing and all those kind of things that's what i started how did it feel then you learned that you made the sale oh it was amazing you get the notification and the dings and it's like, you just made a sale. I was like, oh, now I got to figure out how to sh ship a huge guitar across the country. Um, and, uh, and, and I did it, but it was, it, it, it feels really good because essentially it's an idea that was in your brain and then you realize it in a physical form and then somebody else decided that's cool. I want that. And was was willing to give you money to obtain it. Yeah. Do you when you sell through Etsy? Do you uh, get their content information? You you get yeah you get their email and you get their um, address because you have to ship it. Do you ever so, talk to so, them or or connect with them further? Yeah. I try to follow up. Um, in fact, what was their story? Do you remember much about them? Um. The first one, oh, one of the first ones. No, I don't. They they were just really they just really liked the design of it because it was kind of a it was really unique. It was not, um, you know, it wasn't a common kind of guitar color or anything like that that you would be able to find just at any music store, and I, and that was what appealed to this person. Um, the sale that happened soon after that one was actually the theme of it was. Um, it was a black electric guitar. Then it had this orange and red, like seventies stripes on it that were, and I came across this design or a similar design from an early, um, 1972, like Honda motorcycle that was like, that had this real, it was just a kind of like kind of hot rod 70s. sort of yeah, racing sort of. stripes and or I, something. So I, so I mimicked this guitar design off of that. And, and then what I did when I was selling it was I would show in social media, like, 
the, the source of the inspiration. Was, That's cool. Yeah, where I got the inspiration and then the, the actual guitar design. And that was what um, sparked this person for, for buying it. He's like, I used to have that motorcycle. And so he's like, this, this is cool. And I'm a guitar player. So this is totally cool. And, and he was like thrilled with it. So, um, so I did a couple more of those. I did one like a, a surf cruiser, 1940s, like uh, Woody Wagon cruiser. Um, if you know what those are, you can look at Google it and look it up. And I created a guitar that had this teal color with like a woody wood paneling uh, pick guard in the middle of it. So it kind of re- resembled this, this design of a car. And then I showed those things together. Um, and, and that person actually bought three guitars um, out of my Etsy shop that included. And, uh, so it sounds like was a little, uh, your early guitars, like you would get some sort of visual inspiration and then we like oh i want to recreate that as a guitar is that sort of fair yeah um how much when you're when you're thinking in those terms um how much consideration do you or can you put on the actual musicality of the instrument or the sound it makes like what what how important is that in your kind of creative process yeah i would say the i I, people ask are you a luthier which is someone who makes and constructs guitars and, and that's their their profession and i'm like no i'm not a luthier i would say i'm an artist who makes guitars um but the quality and functionality of the guitars is absolutely in, intact and it's they're very playable and whatnot so when i'm doing those kinds of designs um i'm still thinking about the tone of the guitar, like the the what's the output of the sound that this thing will make and my litmus test for that is what I want to play it. Do I want to play it? Do I like, I've been playing guitar for 25 plus years. Like, would I pick this up and be like, not only look visually interesting, but oh, and this is, this is play. It's easy to play. It has a good tone and all that. So I, I definitely am considering all of that kind of thing. Um, I think with the guitars, the cool thing is, is that. I try to focus on the electronics if it's an electric guitar and the tone of it sort of really kind of first, like what are the, what are the foundational pieces of the instrument that will make it sound like it needs to sound and play well and feel comfortable when someone's playing it. And then all the visual elements, those are really just more cosmetic on art itself. So those, those often are not really affecting playability or the tone or I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make sure that when I design it that it's not in the way where it would affect any of the playability or anything like that so so I would say yeah the sound quality is is always something I'm going after but one one thing I do tell people who are buying and I'm very transparent with this is these are guitars made from upcycled reused materials so knowing that there's going to be nicks knocks scratches and and you know you can't expect it to be a pristine guitar that you're pulling out of the box for the first time that's brand new and it's gonna in the same way it's probably gonna feel a little bit different you know it might have a little bit different kind of tone but my theory is if i can be really transparent about all its sort of imperfections which are in my opinion part of the character of the guitar um, and you still want it as a as buyer, then then you know what you're getting. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to dupe anyone here. Sure. Um, share more about why why do you um, uh, not identify as a luthier? 
Uh, mainly, mainly because my, my lack of confidence in, in that, in that skill set. Um, like I know enough to be dangerous around like what it takes. I like a luthier, true luthier would actually construct the entire neck of a guitar and the body and everything else. I, they probably have a lot of specialized equipment and things like that. Yep. Mechanical yeah, equipment. And just years of training. Like I'm not, I am not fashioning my own guitar necks. I am finding them from discarded old guitars and reusing them. Um, that's one thing. If you don't get that right, the whole guitar is just not going to play well. And I want things to be very playable. So at some point, maybe in the future, I'll get to that, that stage and, and learn some of those skills and, and get there. But uh, I'm, not, I'm not there today. And, and that's okay. I'm having fun and, and people are still enjoying it. Um, I think I it's such say, a cool thing to, to, to really uh, pause on for a second because I think uh, a lot of times uh, folks, you know, if they see uh, whatever they think is the, the, the best, the top number one way of doing something that's creative and they're like oh i can't do that like i'm not even gonna get started but like you are getting started every day you're learning you're growing you're getting better and yeah maybe who knows maybe you won't but maybe at some point three years five years from now you have more of that equipment and you start playing with that yeah. and you just you grow in that direction or you grow in a different direction but you're not letting um any sort of like negative self-talk or like uh or concern about there being really um proficient craftsmen out there like prevent you from helping people and having fun and and doing what you're doing you know what i mean yeah and and i think that comes from i think i believe that there's an audience for every artist so um maybe there's someone that's doing something similar building guitars who is an actual luthier and they're building one-off guitars that are one of one um and they're charging a whole lot more or whatever else that's totally cool that's that's fine that's their their gig um, but it doesn't mean that I can't do what I'm doing and still have buyers. Right. Uh, because they're out there. It's just uh, the hard part is finding them really. But yeah, I think, I think you nailed it. I, I, I have a feeling that as you grow in this, uh, um, practice, the, that might be a way to increase your pricing power, to increase the perceived value of what you're doing is, is adding that element to your, your tool belt. Um, uh, have you ever like. This is sort of a random question, but I know that there are certain um, really kind of old growth, um, nice wood that's often uh, forested from the Pacific Northwest or other interesting areas where it's very interesting kind of wood that's used in um, big executive board tables or dining room tables or things like that. Is that sort of like old growth, like hardwood ever used in uh, guitar bodies? Oh, yeah. 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 Um... Gosh, I, I'm trying to think of this is what's cool about building guitars, in my opinion, is like different woods have different tonal qualities. Yeah. So um, when you when you string it up and have a guitar built out of certain woods, you could have something that's like from a, a I, I live in Wisconsin and we have a whole driftless sort of area where um if you know anything about like Wisconsin, the Great Lakes, a lot of glaciers came through here, which created the Great Lakes and all that stuff. And then they have these driftless communities where glaciers actually didn't touch any of those areas. And they have a lot of really interesting wood. And, and I don't know off the top of my head, like the species of the wood or whatever. Sure. But I, like a lot of them, well, there's a lot of artists 
furniture makers specifically that will use wood from that area because it just it's really hard or it just has a really durable quality to it so stuff like that could make a great guitar and that I had watched a documentary not too long ago, and I'm, the name is escaping me, but it was this luthier who owned a guitar shop in New York City, and he would um, he gets wood from a lot of the old buildings that have been knocked down over the years from the city in the city, and um, he would categorize them or whatever else, and started to build various guitars out of this wood and. You, he would demonstrate kind of the tonal qualities of finished guitars. He's like, oh, this one was built with this kind of wood from this building that was knocked out. This was built this kind of wood from this other building that was knocked down. And then you could hear some of the differences in the tonal quality. So it's very interesting. So yeah, absolutely. Um, wood choice, you know, is going to have an effect on the tonal quality of, of any instrument that you build. Yep. I have to send you maybe some images after this because, um, just thinking from aesthetics, they're these just incredible woodworkers who make these beautiful tables that are have these different kind of uh, colorings to the wood. It's all like a single block, and they might put um, mm-hmm. well, like some sort of uh, fill, filler in it if there's like cracks or holes in the wood that mm-hmm. they have to fill in, and it just makes these incredibly looking uh, tables. And it just it could be an interesting source of inspiration for some some guitars. Yeah, yeah. I mean that some of these. Well, this one in particular over here, you probably can't see it very well, but one of the interesting things about that is it was an acoustic, a true acoustic guitar, and I I chopped it in half, so the width of it is now smaller, like an electric. Okay. And I put electronics in it to make it an electric guitar. But what's interesting, I'll just pull it off real sure. quick. What's interesting? What's interesting about the 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 wood? This is all. I followed the wood grain with um a wood burning tool to accentuate it and i sand it all the top so it looks all kind of you can see it's got splotchy sort of colorings light and dark throughout the the background of the body then i went over it with this wood burning tool and traced the grain of the guitar to just accentuate it and then stained it all uh, again anyway just just interesting things you can do is what i'm pointing out i guess yeah i love that this was all built with pallet wood um and then and then just stained you know so so just wood grain designs kind of come out so um what's the most you've sold a guitar for uh to date um thousand dollars so i so not long after i um joined your your community and what whatnot and learned a few few tactics that i i wasn't trying i still have my etsy shop but i mainly selling things there that are, I've already created. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll tell you about something else I'm doing on there that might be interesting for everybody to know. Yeah. But but what happened was um, I started to get commissions um, through through some of the process that we talked about. Um, one of which, the one that I sold for about $1,000, came actually through Etsy because most of the guitars I make are right-handed guitars. Um, and that's mainly because there are more right-handed guitar players than, than there are left-handed guitar players, but lefties are just, it's flipped around the other way. Um, and this person was like, I really love what you are doing with these guitars. I would love to get one, but I'm a left-handed player. And so, um, I said, well, I I don't have any that I've already made that are left-handed. 
I could do one as a commission and here's what that would look like. Anyway, long story short, he decided to get a commission. He's a studio artist in like Montana somewhere. So he's in that studio on a regular basis. He's like, I just really love to play unique, weird guitars and stuff and, and just capture the sound and see what I get and whatever else. So I built this custom uh, left-handed acoustic guitar and he wanted something similar to this. He wanted an acoustic, but a thin line is what that's called where we, we chomp it down so the width is a lot thinner than a traditional um, acoustic guitar. And it turned out great and he loved it and, uh, you know, made the commission uh, and then he bought some other merchandise from me, like a hat with my logo on it and whatever else. And I mean, it just turned into a great customer and um, uh, it, it, it was just kind of awesome. And that's led to a few other commissions that I've had so far as a result. And that's, that's what I want to get a little bit more into. Was it um, psychologically uh a sort of a milestone or a hurdle to charge a thousand dollars instead of, you know, hundreds of dollars. Yeah. And, and to also get that money up front was, was pretty nice. Uh, because obviously that helps me pay for materials for, for that project. Um, but yeah, it was completely gratifying. It was, it was kind of like, oh, okay, well, how much, how much higher could I actually charge? Like, what will the market bear? Um, is kind of what my thought process was. So I haven't really gotten past that thousand dollar mark, um, at this point, but I'm, I'm okay with that right now. I'm not like doing this full-time just yet or anything like that, but, um, that proved to be really nice margin in terms of the cost of my materials and shipping. And then that made the margin and my time a, a lot more, uh, justifiable, Reasonable. I guess. Yeah, there's something, it's almost like uh, that guy who, you know, ran the four minute mile or the three minute mile for the first time. Um, I think it's four minute. It's, there's, there's just this like psychological hurdle when you're an artist selling something for a thousand dollars or more. Once you've done that, then you realize, oh, like, yeah, there are buyers out there and they're not like, you know, Scrooge McDuck money bags people like normal people will p pay that amount of money for stuff if it hits them the right way, if it connects with them the right way. Um well, and that's a numbers game, I feel like. Like, you know, it's just having conversations with people and, and on a regular basis. So uh, to then uncover who are those people where this just really resonates and, and, and it turns into that. Yep. And I, and I think it's, it's not also, it's not only about who they are. It's about how you present yourself, your level of confidence, that storytelling we came, uh, came up, we talked about earlier. Um, if you can convey, hey, like, I'm a professional. I've done this a million times. It's a thousand dollars. That sort of energy of like, this is, this is normal. And it's reasonable for you to say yes to this. That will come through. And then more people will be like, okay, like he seems like he knows what he's doing and they'll say yes. Um, so I wouldn't, right. I, it's like, you, you can't discount how much, how important it is to, um, yeah, just like, uh, believe in that, be authentic about what you're charging for. And, um, if you don't have the confidence, um, one solution is to, lower your pricing, but a, perhaps a better solution is to yeah, just work on that confidence, like build that self-esteem, build that practice, figure out, all right, what can I do? What can I provide? How can I make this more interesting where I would be confident asking that amount of money for it and then make those yeah. changes, you know? And what, one thing too, that, that I, that I personally do that I think helps maybe others as well is, is, um, I try to justify 
price, like for myself. Okay, if I were buying this, um, what would I feel comfortable in terms of the justification of this price? So if I were to ask, like if you were selling me a piece of art and I wanted to ask, why, why are you charging $1,000? What, what is it that makes it worth $1,000? I guess is the question. And I, so I try to backtrack that in my process and I'm like, okay, well, I have to buy a certain amount of material, materials where I have to source them because I'm using a lot of used and upcycled material. Um, and then, you know, I have to spend time on, on all of this. And that's part of what you're paying for is, is my unique spin on creating these things. And so that's time. That's the opportunity lost of time. Um, I, I, I could be doing other things that may be making me money. And so I, I'm spending my time here to do this. So, and I, I don't usually get asked that question, but I feel better sort of being prepared with an answer. If someone asks, well, why are you charging so much? And it's like, well, you're this, 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 and this. And, and that's, so really I'm not even, you know, making that much out of it. It's, but I enjoy doing this. And so I want to get, make sure it's of value to you. I, I probably could charge more. Um, anyway, it just helps me feel more comfortable and confident. Uh, in, in charging those kind of prices, knowing that it's like, yeah, logically, I'm putting a lot into this. Yep. Yeah. It's, um, I think as a internal thought experiment, I would, yeah, I wouldn't proactively offer that to people. Um, no, I um, mean, unless they're really adamant and prying and you want to like get into it with them. Sure. That might not be the right buyer anyway. Yeah. Cause it's, um, there's different ways to price. So that sort of exercises is, is, um, in line with what's called cost-based pricing, where you're thinking about all the costs that go into making it. And, um, if it, if that boosts your own internal confidence and makes you feel like there's like an internal logic to what you're doing, I think that's good if it translates into actually asking for that amount and making sales. Um, but there's another type of pricing called value-based pricing, where you just think about more about, um, how the, how having the product uh, improves the life of your customer. And if they're just over the moon and they have all these stories about how it's helped them or if they've enjoyed it, or, um, you just have a lot of demand for what you're offering, then, um, your price is less dictated by the raw materials or the, t the labor inputs and more about, yeah, that the psychological, uh, benefit that people get. And so, um, I'd encourage you as you evolve, you know, and you're probably already doing this some, it's like, you capture more of that social proof. You ask people questions. You get to hear their stories. That will help you, like, justify to yourself charging even more over time. Yeah, it, the value pricing, I think, for me at least, and this may not be for everybody, but value pricing becomes easier. I feel like after you've made a few yes. sales, even if they're not the the top exactly sales numbers. Um, whereas early on, sometimes uh, part of it too is like. I enjoy doing this, so don't tell anybody, but I, I would do this for free. So, you know what I mean? Like, so that I think sometimes artists get hung up with charging um, for something they feel like, well, I really, really like, like it. doing this. We just kind of do it anyway, even if no one was paying me. Um, and so I think that, that psych, they psych themselves out around what the pricing should be because, and they underprice really uh, as a result of that. No, but you're, you're totally right. Like if you haven't made any sales using that sort of cost rationalization is a good way to like um, convince yourself to charge more. But then, yeah, after you've been going for a little while, um, you can kind of change your um, your thinking and decision making there. I love that. That's a good, good insight. Um, so 
uh, what what's ahead for you with the guitars? Like, do you have uh, plans for the next you know six months? What what are you, what's your vision? Yeah, yeah. I so my my goal is to I'd like to crank out. Um, so here's what I've been doing. I've been I've been building guitars that I still sell in the Etsy shop. Those are kind of like the ones I'm building on spec because I want to build them and I have them as inventory and I can sell them to anybody who has interest in them as I promote them. However, um, in doing that, what I found is really helpful, excuse me, is, um, documenting my process as I'm making the guitars and video and whatnot to put on like my YouTube channel or Instagram as far as reels and stuff. And so that's, part of why I keep making the guitars that I sell on Etsy. So they're not the commissions, you know, it's not, I don't have a dedicated buyer already. Um, part of the reason I'm doing that is so I get content in terms of filming the process of making that so I can put it up. And then I have these, and, and those are the guitars I'm trying to probably really limit my costs of producing them because I'm probably, I'm not charging as much for some of these guitars that are on Etsy. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't I don't know if I have a buyer or not. I'm just trying to promote it and sell it. But by having that that content, documenting that, it makes it easier for me to then find people on Instagram and, and have studio tours or talk to people. Like I they can see some of what I'm doing. Um and so that that's that's the other part of the strategy is to go after patients. By way, but for me, I I feel like I need to feel comfortable with having content to sort of prove this is what I do. This is the process. I have done commissions before, um, or if you find a ready-made guitar in my shop that you like, you know you can go after that. That's fine, um, but it just makes the having the conversation a little easier. I point to um, with that content, so that that's a piece. Of it. The other thing I'm doing on Etsy just as a Another revenue stream has been, I've been trying to take decent photographs of all the the guitars I make and then making them available as print on demand canvas prints. So sort of positioning is if you can't afford to have the live guitar in your possession, or you don't really want the live guitar, but you love instruments and you love these designs and you want to litter your, your living room with it. Buy the canvas prints and you can have all my guitars uh, there. So it's just like another supplemental thing. And I've sold a few of those as well, which is, um, I'm not concentrating on that specifically, but it's just kind of like, well, I'm already taking pictures to put up online or put on Instagram or whatever. Why not turn them into a product as well? Have you sold any guitars offline in your local area? Um, I've sold uh, like two. One one was a commission um, from a, a friend of like a friend of a friend who saw what I've been doing and he's just like my daughter's getting into the guitar do you think it was like a holiday Christmas gift or something he's like would you build like a Nick Quintarella guitar for her and I was like yeah absolutely and I was like what what is she into what's your favorite color what you know and so it was really cool uh, and we built this this like Fender Telecaster style guitar and it was purple because uh, that was her favorite color and she has a cat and is into she's a total t-shirt and jeans kind of 12 year old kid or whatever is these are all the descriptions I got 
And so I, I incorporated like denim into the guitar design and then had like an iron on patch of this cartoon cat and what anyway she loved it and uh they were thrilled with it so it was uh, it, it was awesome but that was something that came more more organically locally yeah. offline um and and um i'm looking to do more of that i'm looking to actually go into to businesses one of the things i think would be really great is i'm trying to look at some of these places where i play music live music a lot of more bar restaurant type places um and seeing if I can't sell them a guitar to display in their venue and maybe incorporate their logo or something on the guitar. Uh, so it's like the signage advertising and, and that kind of thing. So I, I need to develop a little bit more of a strategy and approach for that, but uh, that's in the works as well. Yeah. Can I share a suggestion with you or a thought? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, again and again, I've seen, yeah, if you can focus on um, like, uh, raising your rates, figuring out how you can charge more for what you're doing. Um, and you would spend more time on, like you said, maybe doing offline sales or, um, uh, generating conversations on Instagram or other social media sites. I think you're going to net net make more as a side business. Um, and then if you, um, have tons of different product offerings. Um, if you have the yeah. the canvas prints and so on and so forth. So, just food for thought. Like, I mean, yeah, if the if the Etsy store is working and you're selling some stuff, um, and you've got some existing inventory, that's great. Um, but I bet you probably have you have probably more content and more like trying to material showing how it's all done and how it's made. You have more than enough of that, and now it's more. If you wanted to, you could just spend more time on building relationships and and making sales. Um, have you yeah. thought about that? Yeah, you know, and and it's good to hear you say that because um, I I don't want to sort of dilute my offerings online with with too many avenues. Um, I was just trying to think of things that were logical with with what I've already been, and you know, part of it's, it's does that work? Maybe, maybe not. Right. Um, but to your point, yeah, absolutely. What I what I'm interested in is um, more conversations and more of the commission work, uh, with the idea that as a result you can raise your rates. How many commissions have so you done around like a thousand so far? Um, only two. Only yeah. two out of like I think I've had four four total in yeah. the last. I mean, this is all in the last maybe twelve months. Yeah. So I would try to get like three more $1,000 commissions. So now you've had five. And then I would think about, okay, let me sell my originals for a thousand and let me like double my commission rate. <laughs> and then, yeah, no, I think, and then just keep, keep going. But it's, I don't know, for some reason, I think there's this temptation. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of content out there. There's a lot of materials for new entrepreneurs that is all designed around um, creating like lower ticket items that in theory, don't require as much of your time or labor or relationship building skills because of your background in like B2B and stuff. Um, I have a feeling you could you could get to a point where you're selling something, you know, whether it's the commissions or the originals for like $5,000. And now if you're just cr cranking out one of those a month, two of those a month, um, you have some right. really nice meat on the bone where you could start um, hiring people to help you set up a nice website. Like you could maybe run some ad spend. You can... Or you could go to like 
you know, offline shows and pour some of that money into paying to go to shows and meet people. So uh, there's this sort of tendency where we get into this place where we're like, we're making money, but we're not making enough money to flourish. We're just kind of like running in place and right. too like hungry to eat. The, the operation is sustaining itself, which is great. But how do you, how do you break it out to the, the yes. next level? Yes, yes, yes. So I feel like you, you have all the, 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 the workings to just go a little bit deeper in learning sales skills and um, putting in that time. But I think, I think the reason why a lot of artists resist that is because it means that you might spend 70%, 80% of your time on relationship building and then 20% of your time on like actually making the art for a little while. And so that's like not as appealing, of, of course, to a lot of artists, but. Yeah, yeah. And, and I personally don't mind that. Um, but um, yeah, no, like, like the, after I went to like your course stuff um, and I, I had originally had the Etsy shop to begin with, um, like I said, it's, it's still serving me well enough, but I, I, at that time almost like just shut the whole thing down to focus on commissions. And I, and the reason I didn't was I was still getting sales out of it. Yeah. So that was one thing. Um, but, uh, the, the other reason was just like, I'm getting sales out of it, but I also kind of feel like I want a transition. So if, if it is in my future to like shut that down and do more offline stuff, then I, I want to make sure that. I've got the offline stuff operating exactly. the way I need it to operate before I totally cut this other thing off. So it's still a yeah. possibility, but while it's still serving and making, you know, some revenue, I, I just assume I, if it's, if it's, it if it's on autopilot, keep it. It's just, right. it's just, there's a, you're like, oh, I'm going to make canvas prints and I'm going to make hats and then I'm going to make this. And that and next thing you know, it's like, you're spending all your free time on like making new products rather than marketing or promoting, um, the right. core product, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, that, that's, that's good advice. That's absolutely good constructive criticism. So, um, yeah. And, and some of those other products, as you say that, just thinking through like the numbers and, and stats that I know, um, they're certainly not anywhere near what the cars are. So, um, yeah, probably, that's probably a good, uh, <laughs> good reminder, a reminder to, to really, uh, examine that a little bit further. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it sounds like you're making good progress and um, I'm very happy for you. So um, is there anything like if you want to learn more about you and um, what you're doing, where can they find more about you online? Yeah, sure. So there's uh, Nick V Guitars and it's guitars plural. It's Nick V as in Victor, like my last name or initial of my last name, guitars.com. And then also to nickventurella.music is my Instagram handle. Um, but uh, those those are probably the easiest ways to get a hold of me. Love it, love it. And if you have any, do you have any advice for people that are maybe artists who are thinking about uh, getting into um, functional art like this, whether it's guitars or something else like that? Do you have any advice for them? Uh, well, the biggest piece of advice is just start and just do it. I mean, the, um, and and just start in a way that is comfortable for you. My, my point being might not have confidence in yourself or your abilities, especially if you've never done anything like this before. Maybe it's a whole new set of skills that you've never tried, but you've just always been interested in it. Um, I think YouTube tutorials are your friend. Uh, go check those out, figure out some basic tools and just start, just start doing it because you want to do it. Um, you don't necessarily have to have 
like the buyer and all that stuff in mind just yet. I, I think when you're very first starting out, it's more important that you enjoy the process and you perfect sort of the output of your process. So like the product that you're creating, you, you feel like, oh yeah, this is coming together. This is, this is marketable at this point after maybe you've done a little experimenting with it. And then once you're at that point, then I think it's, it's easier to start thinking about how do I monetize this? Um, cause you've, you've got a little bit of experience getting your process down of actually making Love it. Awesome. Well, Nick, thanks so much for chatting. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, thanks for yeah, everybody. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks. Thanks for everybody for listening. And again, if you, um, enjoy these episodes, make sure to uh, subscribe and follow along and, um, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye everybody. Thanks for tuning in today. If you haven't picked up a copy of the Unstarving Artist book, go ahead and pick up yours at unstarvingartistbook.com. See you next time.